Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott, produced on the lands of the Woiwurrung and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. And I wish to acknowledge that these lands were stolen and that sovereignty has never been ceded. I pay my respects to all elders past and present and to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples who are listening today. Prior to 1836, Ghana people, the Aboriginal and continuing owners of the land that we meet on today, use their sacred sites, ceremonial grounds and cemeteries for their purpose. When the concept of Adelaide came into being, many of these places were destroyed, along with many of the people. It is important that I acknowledge that we are on Ghana land because I'm going to tell you some stories from my people, the Adyumatna people. Adyumatna Yatta, or Adyumatna land, lies six hours north of here in what is commonly known as the Flinders Ranges. Just last year, archaeological evidence showed that we had been here for over 45,000 years the first story I'm going to tell you about is the Yamati. But in order for me to tell you about this story, I need you to close your eyes. Close your eyes and imagine that you're a child, no older than five. It's night time. It's getting darker. You're with your cousins outside playing. Your aunties and your nanas are talking. But then one of your aunties says, all right, you kids, you need to come sit down because that yamati is going to come get you. And all of your cousins get scared. But you're a bit confused because you've never heard of the yamati before. And so you go to your auntie and you say, auntie, what's the yamati? And she looks at you and she says, the yamati is a big, scary monster. It's bigger than you. And he's even bigger than me. So if you see that Yamati, you need to quickly run because he steals kids. The best place for you to go is to quickly run and climb up a tree. Because the thing about the Yamati is that he can't look up. He can only look down or side to side. He'll be able to smell you but he just won't be able to see you. So you stay in that tree until one of us comes and gets you. You can open your eyes. The story about the Yamati came up last year when I was started doing, looking at research into rock art studies in South Australia as a postgraduate archaeology student. I was looking at one study and it had two anthropologists during the 1960s, looking at extinct animals. They were interested in whether megafauna had coexisted with Aboriginal people. In particular, they were interested in one animal, known as the Diprotodon. This animal was a large, wombat-like creature that became extinct 
around 47,000 years ago. They found a footprint which they believed was the footprint of a diprotodon. And they did this by looking at the skeleton of one footprint and matching it with the image of the diprotodon's footprint. And because of this, they came to the conclusion and the idea became more interesting that Aboriginal people and megafauna had coexisted. The thing that I found most interesting about this story was that Aboriginal people were barely included. The only way that we were included was as informants. Back around that time, Aboriginal people were mostly used as people who they get information from and then go and tell the world about who these strange people were. They never really took in any information. This didn't surprise me, because at the time, Aboriginal people weren't even included in the national count of people. You see, prior to the 1967 referendum to change the constitution, Aboriginal people were specifically left out. And this was because of two reasons. The first reason was that they believed that we were closer to animals than we were human. The second reason was that they believed that we were dying out, which is clearly not true because I'm here today. <laughs> the thing that surprised me most is that I had grown up knowing about this animal. And if you hadn't realised by now, that animal is the Yamatu. The story that my nana told my mother, my mother told me and my sister, who told my niece, is the same story, the same animal that they were looking for in this rock up. The thing is, all of our stories actually talk about megafauna. I don't think there's too many stories out there that talk about a small animal. All of them, or at least most of them, are big such as the story of the large snake. This snake ate too much sap from an acacia tree and it vomited all across the land. The places where this snake vomited are known to you as uranium. And so, uranium to us is poison and most of these places right now are used as uranium mines. At the time, Agnumatna people disagreed with mining. However, the Australian law never let us say no. Rather, we had the right to negotiate what we received. And what we received was payment. A payment that I can tell you is less than about enough for a week's worth of food for a family. So, you've probably heard about these stories as myths or as legends in books, in your classrooms, but can you really say that these stories are as simple as myths? 50,000 years worth of occupation tends to get thrown around a lot, like it's nothing. But here are 50 squares, each square representing 1,000 years then 
if you look at the square on the right-hand side, that is the time that Europeans have been on this continent. And I'm not even talking about James Cook. I'm talking about the first European boat that sailed past and said, I see land. So if we've been here for that long, why aren't we considered experts about the land? How is it that 239 years' worth of knowledge is equivalent to 50,000 years' worth of knowledge? The stories I've told you today come from my elders, elders of the people in our community who have the knowledge that is equivalent in white Australian society of a PhD degree, which is why they are central to my research. Whatever they say I can and can't do, I listen to. You've probably met an elder at a welcome to country. But how many of you can say that you've talked to an elder outside of a welcome to country? If the only time we talk to elders is when we're asking them for a welcome to country, then we are not seeing them as the people that they are. We're not seeing them as teachers, as guides, as instructors. It's time to move on from only seeing elders as people who provide welcomes. It's time to see them in positions where they can make decisions and see them for what they truly are as the leaders of this nation. Thank you. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, and that was Jacinta Kulmatri speaking at TEDx in November 2017. Jacinta is a member of both the Ajumatnya and Naranjeri communities and works from an Indigenous knowledge perspective with postgrad qualifications in archaeology and cultural heritage management. One of the cornerstone falsehoods of Terra Nullius was the deliberate historical fabrication that before colonisation, First Nations peoples on this continent were all hunter-gatherers, without any of the recognised significant civilisational hallmarks such as agriculture or large-scale industrial engineering projects. It's a systemic cover-up that continues to this day, but this racist fallacy got a punch in the guts recently when Budge Bim, the well-known and ancient Gunditjmara aquaculture landscape near Lake Condor in Western Victoria, was nominated for World Heritage status. Today on Earth Matters, guest presenter Will Matthews gets a lowdown from Uncle Dennis Rose of the Gunditjmiring Traditional Owners Corporation about this exciting development. But first, this... The Bajalim cultural landscape in southwest Victoria includes evidence of one of the world's largest and oldest aquaculture systems. The 
Budgerbin cultural landscape is located on the Budgerbin lava flow, which was the result of a volcanic eruption of Budgerbin Mount Eccles approximately 30,000 years ago. The extensive collection of wetland swamps and sinkholes located in the lava flow provided an ideal habitat for eels and other fish. By manipulating the seasonal flooding through the creation of stone channels and weirs, Gunditjmara people were able to farm large quantities of the migrating short-finned eel while maintaining a sustainable eel population. We've been working on a World Heritage nomination for more than 10 years. Some well-known examples of places on the World Heritage list include Uluru, the Great Wall of China, the Pyramids in Egypt. Included on the World Heritage list, a site must, number one, demonstrate outstanding universal value. Uh, outstanding universal value means a cultural significance which is exceptional and to be of common importance for present and future generations of all humanity. The outstanding universal value of the Budgebim cultural landscape is evidence of one of the world's oldest known aquaculture systems, which was constructed at least 6,600 years ago. We have constructed and maintained this extensive and technologically sophisticated aquaculture system on the Budgebim lava flow. To be also included on the World Heritage List, the site must meet at least one of ten selection criteria. For example, criteria three, to bear a unique or at least exceptional testimony to a cultural tradition or to a civilization which is, which is living. The Budgebim cultural landscape bears exceptional testimony to the knowledge and ingenuity of the Gunditjmara people in the creation of an eel aquaculture system that has endured for at least 6,600 years. A report in 1893 by Alexander Ingram, a government surveyor, reads in part, by the channels formed by the Aborigines for fishing and trapping eels and trout, these channels have been made by removing loose stones and portions of the more solid rocks between the ridges. Much of the Budgeboom lava flow has not been cleared of vegetation and the fish trap systems are still in remarkably good condition. Another of the criteria is have a and an adequate protection and management system to ensure its safeguarding. At present, a team of nine Budgebin rangers manage, conserve and protect the cultural and natural values of Gunditjmara-owned properties along the Budgebin lava flow. The Budgebin cultural landscape also contains evidence of permanent settlement associated with the aquaculture systems. There are many stone houses recorded along the lava flow. We also have a number of smoking trees where eels were smoked and, and then traded. On one property alone there is 146 recorded stone house sites. In March 2015 an independent review of our nomination found that the Budgebin cultural landscape is a site of international significance. The site is suitable for World Heritage nomination in the evolved cultural landscape category. The three criteria that are identified are strongly justified.
And that was from the Budge Bim Cultural Landscape promo video from the Gunditch Mirroring Traditional Owners Corporation website featuring Auntie Eileen Alberts, Uncle Dennis Rose and Tyson Lovett Murray. You're listening to Earth Matters with guest presenter Will Matthews speaking to Uncle Dennis Rose about the six and a half thousand years old Gunditjmara Aquacultural Landscape and Sacred Site Budge Bim, which was recently nominated for World Heritage Status. The Budge Bim fish traps down in Gunditjmara country near Portland are in the final stages of being considered for World Heritage Status by UNESCO. And so to tell us a bit more about the process, we've got Dennis Rose from the Gunditch Mirroring Traditional Owners Corporation. So let's talk about the Budgebim fish traps. So what are they? Well, look, out, out on country, out on the Budgebim lava flow, the, the lava flow erupted, uh, or Budgebim itself erupted 30,000 years ago. On the lava flow, we have uh, a large number of, of individual fish trap systems that actually combine to make an aquaculture system. So when we're talking about fish traps and aquaculture systems out on the country, we're definitely talking about a, a system that farmed eels, stored them, fattened them up, grew eels, as opposed to some opportunistic sort of uh, trapping of the species as they swim by. And around Lake Condor or Tayrak, as the traditional name is, uh, we have 80 individual fish trap systems and then down the lava flow we have other smaller scale systems but they operated on, on various levels as the water rose and fell. Do we have any idea of how long ago these fish traps were in use and for how long they've been there? Yeah, the, the, uh, there's a scientifically accepted date on, on, on one of the uh, systems which we call the Muldoon system, uh, scientifically uh, accepted date of 6,600 years. So that's when that particular fish trap was first constructed, uh, 6,600 years ago. There aren't many things on the planet that were built that long ago that are still in existence today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, uh, again, dates of that system uh, being um, built upon around about 800 years ago and about 300 years ago. So as water levels uh, rose a little bit, uh, the systems were built up, and uh, you know, people were still using these uh, in, in the days uh, of European invasion. In fact, we have a, a, a diary and, and maps drawn by a Crown Land surveyor in around about the 1882, I think. He spent time with a couple of Gunditjmara people out around on the fish traps and uh, when they were still in operation, yeah. And that really puts a lie to the fiction that Aboriginal people on these lands were just hunter and gatherers. They actually engaged with the land and they engaged in farming practices. So, would would that be what you say is the the significance of Budgebim? Look, it certainly is. I think that um, you know um, there are a number of lava flows in Western Victoria and South East South Australia, but this is the only one that has the uh, the scale of uh, cultural features. So we have the uh, the fish traps. And also uh, Stonehouse sites. We, you know, one of our properties, we have 146 recorded Stonehouse sites, which indicate, you know, a, a small village. To I think Major Mitchell in his diaries talks about uh, being around the edge of some of these wetlands and, and seeing 200 small campfires in an evening. So it was a place where people, because of this great water supply, that this is why. 
why the features are constructed on, on budge beam as opposed to the other ones that has a very reliable and good supply of water year in, year round. The, the creek that supplies the water is traditional name is Kalara, which means always there, and that's a very appropriately named place. The recommendation for World Heritage status was first made by the International Council of Monuments and Sites in Paris. I think that was last year um, sometime. And so this is the basis on which UNESCO is deciding whether or not to sign the World Heritage status. So what point of that process are we at now? Around about the 6th or so of July, the World Heritage Committee meets from the 1st till the 10th of July. We understand that around about the 6th, of July, um, they will uh, discuss and, and, and decide upon the uh, the recommendation. We're hopeful, of, uh, hopefully expecting a, uh, a positive decision that, that Budgebin will be inscribed on the World Heritage List. It'll be the 20th place in Australia to be inscribed and it'll be the first Australian site to be inscribed purely because of its Indigenous values. So this this is kind of a question that um, that some of our listeners may have swimming around in their heads at the moment, that the Budgevim um, fish traps have been around, as you say, for 6,000 years, if not more, and the UN has been around since the end of World War II. So it's uh, like, what what is the significance of, of that institution um, sort of assigning that heritage status to Budgevim that, that wasn't already inherent in it, if that makes any sense? Yeah, look, I think... World Heritage sort of has three aspects to it, a World Heritage inscription. Uh, one is recognition, so it's recognition of what is out on that country and recognition of, of our ancestors, our Gunditjmara ancestors' remarkable uh, engineering works, and that's what they were. They are an engineering uh, works that was about modifying water flows, diverting water, channeling water, and then using that water to increase the food resource. So... Uh, recognition of what's out there. Um, I think better protection and management will uh, will be subject to uh, people looking a bit more closer at our management practices, which isn't a bad thing. We always strive to uh, do the best management we can on country, and hopefully it will provide some extra resources to uh, resolve some of those management issues that we face. And third, um, you know, I think there'll there'll certainly hopefully be a uh, financial benefit for. Uh, Gunditjmara people and more broadly the South West region in general that uh, with World Heritage Listing will attract more visitation to a, a beautiful part of the country and uh, we look forward to that as well. Certainly the Andrews government has already earmarked $5 million um, for tourism infrastructure. What is your hope for the future in terms of the use of this land? Oh, look, we'll continue to do what we do. I think that uh, you know our first and foremost, our major responsibility, our cultural responsibility is to look after the country and to improve the country and to stop the degradation of weeds and rabbits and other exotic pests uh, that we have to do revegetation to protect those important cultural uh, features that we, we have out on country. So look, we will continue to do what we do uh, and we'll have better, probably a better focus and some better resources to assist us to do that. Now, Dennis, I imagine hearing about this, some of our listeners and a lot of people would be interested to go down and actually have a look at the Budgebim fish traps. Is that something that people are welcome to do? And if so, how yes. should they go about it? Well, we do. We have, um, there's a couple of options. One, and the, the preferred option is that we have uh, Budgebim tours. They can look that up in the Google machine. Uh, mm-hmm. Budgebim tours, they run run tours. If 
too is uh, hard an option for people. We have uh, our Tirundara, what we call our Tirundara IPA. IPA is Indigenous Protected Area. That's a, a property that's about 25 kilometres east of Portland, um, and uh, they can they can go out there at their leisure. It it's, has uh, access day in day out. No tours as such, but uh, they have some, some signage there. But we always recommend that the best way to see and understand Gunditjmara country is that have a good Lichmara tour guide, so Budgetman Tours is uh, uh, the way to go. Wonderful. And so you're looking that up on Google. Um, Budgetman is spelt B-U-D-J space B-I-M. Yeah, well, best of luck with the the process. It sounds like it'll bring some benefits to the community and to the management of Budgetman. Thank you so much for joining us on Community Radio. My pleasure, Will. Thank you. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott and guest presenter Will Matthews speaking to Uncle Dennis Rose about the ancient Gunditjmara aquacultural landscape and sacred site Budge Bim, which was recently nominated for World Heritage status. If you want to learn more, check out their website at gunditjmiring.com. We also heard from Jacinta Kulmatri, a member of both the Ajumatnya and Naranjeri communities. And you can check Jacinta out on Twitter at jkulmatri. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in bringing you this program today and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne. And we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Those people who have no land rights haven't got justice, but neither do those people who have land rights have justice. You're listening to Community Radio Network around Australia, brought to you by 3CR Community Radio. So stay tuned as we bring you news, live updates, music and interviews with Aboriginal people from around the country. The only free body we have is the Aboriginal government on the grassroots 
and the Aboriginal Embassy on the lawns outside the old Parliament House. We will not go away, and as that stone rests in that mountain, and as our spirit rests in this country, and over this country, we will not go away. Neither shall our power pass, and that's here forever, until justice comes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.